All right, it's that time once again. Let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn in them, if you will, to Revelation chapter 20. And we find ourselves picking it up at verse 11 this morning. And let's read together. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to their works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Confession time. How many of you have ever stood before a judge here in our judicial system in America? Well, my court appearances started very early. I was actually three years old. Beat that, okay? Three years old. It was a follow-up because I was adopted, and I had to go before a family court. They wanted to make sure everything was okay. I remember my father lifting me up and putting me on the edge of the, uh, the uh, desk or the uh, I don't know what you would call it, where the judge sits. I had my little suit on, and I was terrified, okay? This woman, this was back now in the 70s, and this, the judge, who happened to be a woman, had these huge, thick glasses. And so when she looked at you, it looked like her eyes were this big, and I'm standing, I'm just, I remember just looking at her just like, oh my gosh. And she said to me, she goes, now you better be good for your mom and dad because I see everything. Okay, okay, I will, you know. I will. I had to go to court when I was uh, uh, young, uh, 12, 13 years old because I got a traffic ticket for riding a wheelie across one of the busy streets in Elk Grove Village. Did you ever get a ticket on your bicycle? Okay. One time... <laughs> okay. I'm telling you, the, 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 the cops in Elk Grove, they had a picture of me, you know. Later on, after becoming a Christian... Uh, I was driving to the local Christian bookstore, and on my way there, the muffler blew on my Firebird, and it was so loud. I mean, it was unbelievable. These little uh, rice spitters that they got out, now, it, it, nothing. Okay, that's nothing compared to this thing. People thought the judgment of God had come as I was driving down the road. So on my way to the bookstore, I got pulled over, and the, the cop just looked down at me, He's like, aren't you the one that rode the wheelie? No, uh, he didn't say that. He, he, uh, he pulled me over and gave me a ticket of compliance that I had to go and make sure that I got the work done and so forth. So I said, okay, fine. You know, I, was being, I was a Christian. I was trying to be respectful and so forth. 
Then I got to the Christian bookstore. I, I picked up the book that I was looking to purchase. Driving home, guess what happens to me a second time? I got pulled over again by another police officer. He begins to write the you know, ticket of compliance. And I said, oh, that's like the first one I got on the way to the store this morning. And then, of course, you have to go before the judge uh, just to show them. At that time you did. I don't know if you have to do it anymore to, that you complied and got the muffler fixed. And he's looking. He's like, okay, now this one is an hour after this one. Yeah, I got one going there, and I got one coming back. The last time going to court. <laughs> okay, I'm just confessing all my sins right now. Okay, I'm just getting them all out. It was about 10 years ago. A member of our church needed some assistance in a legal manner and wanted me to meet them at, a, at the courthouse to sit with them because they were nervous and scared about the procedure, so I went. And sure enough, on my way there, I got pulled over again. Okay, this time they said I was speeding in a construction zone that was on the other lanes of traffic. And I had to go before a judge again. And of course, the room that I had to go to was filled with everybody I would have considered my friends, you know, you know people I could relate to. And then I got up before the judge and he looks up through his glasses and goes, you know, you're the first guy all day that has come before me with a big smile on their face. I don't usually see that as a judge. And he asked me about what had happened. Then he goes, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a pastor. He goes, you got a, you're a pastor who got pulled over for speeding. Hey, I'm not perfect, you know. But I didn't think I was speeding, okay. But I remembered what he said, that I approached him with a smile. That I could approach the judge with a smile. He reduced the fine. He gave me just a warning because I hadn't had a, a traffic ticket in forever. But how many of us can say that when we stand before the judge, the ultimate judge, we can do so with a smile on our face? Well, let me tell you this. The folks that we are going to look at this morning cannot do that. They will not have that ability. They are going to stand before the great white throne of God without a defense, alone, and completely guilty of the sins in which they have committed. There will be no one advocating for them. There will be no response or dialogue between the one sitting on the throne and the individual standing before that throne. It will be a finality. A once and for all. And as we will see this morning, this is not a place that you want to stand. We do not want to stand before the great white throne of God. And let me just encourage you that if you are in Christ and you have that relationship with Jesus, you will not stand before the great white throne of God. But here's the question. Do you have that relationship? Because what we are going to see is that some will stand at that place never thinking that they would ever be there. Let's take a look at our text, if you will. The entrance to eternity, as one said, Thomas Watson, the famous Puritan, he says, eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset. Eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. 
Either you will be born once and die twice, or born twice and only die once. What do I mean by that? If you are born into this world and are not born again, not only will you die physically, but you'll also die spiritually. Now, when I talk about spiritual death, I'm not talking about the ceasing of existence. You will exist in all eternity apart and separated from God. But if you are here today and you were born once into this world through your mother and are born again in and through the Spirit through Christ, then you'll die once. Oh, you may physically die, but you will not spiritually die. You will inherit eternal life, that is that life that is uh, enjoyed in the presence of of our God. This morning, the reality of this judgment is front and center. At this point in time, it is too late for these individuals who will stand before this great white throne. It is an ominous, serious, sobering moment in biblical history. It is that moment in time that we remember each and every time we see a loved one, family, friend, co-worker, neighbor, who doesn't know Jesus Christ and realize that they are destined for this moment, a moment that they can only be spared from in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Dante said that the sign above the gates of hell is abandon hope, all who enter here. Notice with me that he describes this throne as a great white throne. He does so because in it describes the characteristic of the throne. It is great. It means that it is the final authority over all things. Sovereign. There is no greater authority. There is no appeal from this court. It is once and for all to be determined the fate of the individual who stands before this great throne. It is described by the color white to represent its righteousness, its purity. And of course, at this moment, then we are introduced to the one who sits on that throne. Again, the individual standing before this throne and him who sits on it does so alone. There is no advocate. There is no defense attorney standing alongside of them. There is no rebuttal, there is no appeal, just a sentencing by the judge himself. And of course, the one who is sitting on this throne is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Notice with me, as we go through verses now that show and demonstrate that it is Christ who sits on this throne and why Christ sits on this throne. In Matthew 19, 28, should be on the screen behind me, so Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who follow me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the, the holy angels with Him, and He will sit on the throne of His glory. In John 5, 22 and 23, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, 
that all should honor the Son just as they honored the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And Paul the Apostle, writing to the church in Philippi, he wrote this in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has also highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name. And at that name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, and those on the earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There is no better one to sit on this throne. The individual standing there before the great white throne and him who sits on it will be confronted with the reality of what Jesus Christ has done on their behalf Remember, the Bible tells us that Jesus will carry the scars, the wounds of the crucifixion throughout all eternity, Revelation chapter 5. Think about this for a moment, if you will. An individual standing there, completely guilty in their sin, apart from any advocate, without propitiation, as John writes in 1 John. He then stands there, or she then stands there, and sees the judge bearing the marks of the crucifixion, realizing at that moment that if they only would have received him, if they only would have repented and believed on him, they would have been spared that moment. And being confronted with the reality of the suffering that he went through to overcome the sins of the world, and yet they still rejected. Notice with me that it is all of humanity who had died apart from Christ will be there. From whom the face of the earth and the heavens, verse 11, fled away, and there was found no place for them. And in verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, every demographic will one day stand before God, who have died apart from a relationship with Jesus, who have died in their sins. It doesn't matter if they were a king, a prince, or a pauper. It doesn't matter who they are. Each and every person will give an account who have died apart from Christ. And it's at that moment that we will see that all of the corruption, all of their sin, everything that they've ever done, Everything they ever said, everything they ever thought will be openly exposed and judged accordingly. The corruption that they thought that they may have gotten away with here on this earth will be exposed and they will be held accountable for it. Doesn't matter who they were, it doesn't matter what position they had, it doesn't matter if they were the greatest or the least, all will stand before God who have died apart from Christ. And notice here with me, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. All throughout the Bible, various books are mentioned. And noticing the progression of the revelation, meaning the initial revelation that books exists, and then as we go through the Bible, you see how those books develop and what we learn about those various books. The book that we have to be the greatest concerned about is the book of life. 
If your name is not found written in the book of life, that means you are not in Christ. And therefore, other books will be opened, which we'll discuss in a moment, and you will be judged according to your works. Notice what Jesus said in John 12, 47 and 48. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Jesus was saying that I've come to save. But if individuals reject, then they will be judged by what they have said and done. They will stand there apart from me, the only advocate that can stand up for them before God the Father. And they will be held accountable for what they have done. But the book of life is mentioned all the way back in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 31, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin. And have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. In Psalm 69, 26-28, For they persecuted the ones you have struck, and talk of grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. Daniel gave us interesting uh, insight to this book when he wrote in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. At that time, Michael, that is Michael the angel, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as was never since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Speaking of the resurrection. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn uh, many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And even Malachi, before exiting the Old Testament, spoke of the book of remembrance when he wrote in Malachi 3, 16-18. Then those who fear the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that, on the day that I make them my jewel, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. You shall then discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. God is taking notes. And those written in the book of life will be carried into eternal life in his presence 
to enjoy for all eternity. But in the New Testament, this idea of a book continues from the Gospels all the way to the book of Revelation. In Luke 10, 19 through 20, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall be, uh, by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits are subject, subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. The Hebrew writer talked about this when he said, But you have come to Mount Zion, Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. I know I'm giving you a lot of verses here, but I'd like you to see it for yourself. Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are registered or written in heaven, to God who judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. And when we entered Revelation, we were told in Revelation 13, 7 and 8, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And the authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth shall worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundations of the world. And in Revelation 17, 8, the beast that you saw was, is, not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundations of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. And then, of course, in Revelation chapter 21, once again, we read, but there shall by no means enter into anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he who overcomes in Revelation 3, 5, and 6 shall be clothed with white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, let's be honest. We need to be written in the book of life, okay? I showed that to you to demonstrate how serious it is. Now, what is God speaking of when he's talking about the blotting out? Well, most scholars believe that each and every person who ever lives is found written in the book of life. And when they determine not to receive Jesus Christ uh, and to rebel against the gospel, at an appointed time that only God knows, he removes that name knowing that they will never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That seems to be the most plausible of all of the ideas concerning those being blotted out of the book of life. Again, the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man is one that has plagued theologians since the beginning of the church. C.H. Spurgeon said it this way, when asked about the reconciliation of free will and the sovereignty of man, he said this, I see no need to reconcile two who are already friends. Now, I can't tell you that after 30-some years of studying God's Word that I fully understand the sovereignty of God. 
it is an infinite man trying, to, I'm sorry, a finite man trying to understand an infinite God. But I do know this, that in reading the Bibles, I see, Bibles, the Bible, singular, I see that there is a relationship between the sovereignty of man and man's responsibility of free will. I see them working together, hand in hand. Again, God has not asked me to understand fully how he saves people, only that he does. But what he has asked of me is to share the gospel with Jesus Christ to everybody who will listen, inviting them to receive Christ, sharing with them their need to receive Christ, and allowing him to do what only he can do, and that is save them from their sin. For it's only God who can take us from death to life. It's only God who can take us from darkness to light. And in saying that, we see that those names that remain and are found in the book of life will enjoy eternity in the presence of the Lord. But the book of life is not the only book that is mentioned here. Notice with me again in verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Now, what are these books? One said it this way, At the judgment, the books will be opened. These books contain the record, uh, recorded deeds of everyone, good or evil. Everyone's life will be reviewed and evaluated. No one is saved by deeds, but these deeds are seen and clearly evident of a person's actual relationship with God. Jesus will look at how we have handled gifts, opportunities, and responsibilities. God's gracious gift of salvation does not, uh, does not free us from the requirements of faithful obedience and service. Each of us must serve Christ in the best way we know and live each day knowing that the books will be open. Now, what is he saying here? Those who have found written in the book of life will not be standing at this moment in time. That does not mean that we will not be held accountable by God for, in the, for the manner in which we have used or appropriated the new life in which God has given us. You see, we're going to stand before another throne. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We know it to be the Bema seat of Christ where it is more as an athlete being rewarded for those things that they have accomplished. And at that moment in time, every deed, thought, motive, etc. is going to be evaluated by God. Those things we did selflessly will be rewarded with gold, precious stones, and silver. But those things we've done for selfish motivations, or those things we've done in the flesh, or those things that we have continued to conduct ourselves in in the old life, those things will be like hay and stubble, be burned away. But the Bible clearly tells us that our salvation is not in question at that moment. That we will be saved, but saved as through one who goes through fire. Meaning, one who has been evaluated. The books that we are speaking about today are for those who died apart from Christ. And these books will be open, and within these books will be the works of each and every individual that stands before God. One has stated it this way, 
that he sees four components possibly contained in these books other than the book of life. The first element of these books would have to be the book of the law, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is is the standard by which each and every person will be righteously evaluated. Now, we know the Ten Commandments are impossible to keep in and of ourselves. We know that we could never inherit eternal life through the keeping of the Ten Commandments. And then to adhere to all of the various laws that stem from the Ten Commandments, which probably number around 600. Now, if I were to ask you right now to take out a piece of paper and to write down all 600 laws of the Old Testament, how many of you could do it? None of us. Because we don't know them by memory. So then how do we know we're keeping them? Oh, and if you think for a moment that you're capable of keeping them, let us remember what James tells us. That he who breaks one of the commandments is guilty of all of them. And so it is an impossibility to be saved by the keeping of the law. So these individuals, first and foremost, will be compared to the Ten Commandments. And of course, they will fall short. Because all have fallen short of the glory of God. I think of what Paul says in Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. There will be no defense. There will be no excuse at this moment. Oh, but God! Oh, oh but you know, you're not taking these things into consideration. You're not taking that. He's taking everything into consideration. And if you are found guilty against one of the laws, you have broken all of the law. Another portion of these books, undoubtedly, is everything that we've ever done, said, or thought. For Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. People aren't getting away with anything. I know that can be gravely discouraging, can't it? To think that so many corrupt, wicked, and evil people seem to just be getting away with things. How selective our DOJ has become in the prosecution of law, targeting some and excusing others. I heard this week now Elon Musk is being sued by the DOJ for not hiring illegal immigrants. Think about that for a moment. This is how crazy it has become. And it's easy to become discouraged because we know that at once a nation's judicial system erodes and there's no longer fairness, it is the beginning of the end of that nation. But as a Christian, I realize that what people may be getting away with here and now, they're not going to get away with for all eternity. They will be held accountable for every crooked deal. No longer will elements of a laptop be hidden, but openly exposed. Individuals profiting off of people will be exposed. Those who traffic will be exposed and judged and held accountable by God. 
I can be confident of that. And I believe that this is why John wrote this. Because it seemed at, in his day that Rome was invincible. That nothing could stop the emperors. That they really were gods in the eyes of the people because they were beyond reproach according to themselves. But John knew in his heart that ultimately each and every person will stand before Christ. And his eyes, like the flame of fire, will see everything that they have committed and done, and they will be held accountable. Now, for you and I who are in Christ, Paul writes this to us, and I say this to encourage you. In Colossians 2, 13 and 14, And you, being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Here's this. He took your sin. He took your guilt. He took every time that you broke the law. And it was nailed with him to the cross. Oh, he wasn't sin himself, but the sins of the world were laid upon his shoulders. And a period of darkness took place as God the Father judged the sins of the world. And what we couldn't do in and of ourselves, Christ did on our behalf. And lastly, perhaps a portion of the book will be every time they heard the gospel... And rejected it. Every time they heard the gospel and rejected it. I think it's important that we consider the type of people that will find themselves at this moment standing before the great white throne of God. First, there are those who are just all and out sinners who have rejected God in a state of atheism, in a state of rebellion and rejection. These are the people who live apart from God their entire lives. They shake their fist at God, and they are proud of it. They will find themselves at this moment in time. There are those who will be the procrastinators, the ones who said to themselves, oh, the next tomorrow I'll consider it. Maybe I'll get saved when I'm older. Maybe they have gone to church time and again. Maybe they were raised in a Christian home and they believe that I don't personally need to accept the Lord. I've inherited through my parents. Let me tell you, God does not have any grandchildren, okay? You don't inherit it through your parents. You have to personally decide to follow Jesus Christ. There are those who are always putting it off. But the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Why? Because tomorrow is promised to no one. Then there are those, and these are the ones I am gravely concerned about. The unsaved church members will stand before Christ at this moment. We hear about the percentage of people in America who identify as Christian, and yet we see that very few of them have biblical worldviews. They seem to have little regard for God's word, fellowship, the presence of God. They openly embrace the social standards of morality, thinking that there is no consequence in doing so. 
Not only do they uh, approve of it, they affirm those living in those sins. They call themselves progressive. We're moving forward in our Christian faith. We're moving the Christian faith forward. The question is, is that every time someone identifies as a progression, when you ask them this next question is usually when they don't have an answer. So you're progressive, yes. You're moving forward, yes. Well, where are you going? I don't know. Well, the Bible tells us where you're going. It's a path that is wide and heavily traveled, but in the end it is destruction. There are those who sit in churches week after week after week. Maybe they give a little bit of money. They serve a little bit here and there. Again, maybe they were someone growing up in the church, and then all of a sudden they have no heart for the things of God, but yet they believe that they're saved. I get concerned about these people because they are going through in the greatest deception that anyone could walk in, and that is believing that you're saved when you are not truly saved. Do you have a heart for God? Do you have a heart for God's people? Do you have a heart for God's word? No, we're not saved by these works, but these works are evidence that we are saved. Do we care? Are we convicted about sin? Or do, do we simply dismiss it? These individuals, they know all about God, but they don't know God. And these are the person, people that I'm concerned about, and so is Jesus. When he said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? It's never our deeds that save us. What we do simply displays that we are saved, and those things we don't can display that we are saved or maybe not saved. And then look at what Jesus says. He then says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. These are individuals who never had a relationship with God. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Oh yeah, we can see Adolf Hitler standing before the great white throne, can't we? But is it possible that individuals who have gone through all the motions of religion, who believe that they are saved simply because they identify as and or have grown up in and yet never truly were. That's why Peter says, make your calling and election sure before this great white throne. And notice with me in verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead in who were it. This is a complete, meaning the sea is often referred uh, or used to describe all of the nations of the world. Death and Hades are those who died before Jesus' second coming. All of this happens after the millennial kingdom takes place. And now they are resurrected to the point where they now stand in judgment before the great white throne. And they are delivered up, the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to their works. Now let me stop you for a moment and just clarify some things. There are two resurrections. 
The first resurrection is on to eternal life. The second resurrection is on to eternal death. Okay? That's why John says, make sure you are part of the first resurrection. Last week we spoke of the first resurrection that began with Jesus Christ that will encompass the church at the rapture of the church and then also include those who die during the tribulation period at the end as we looked at chapter 20 last week before entering into the millennial kingdom. Now, that being said, what about those who have died over the centuries apart from Christ? We get a glimpse into that reality in Luke chapter 16, where Jesus, entering into this place that the Bible calls shield, it is a holding place that is divided in two. One side of it is called Abraham's bosom, and that's where the saints who have died before the first coming of Jesus Christ, the Old Testament believers, resided in comfort until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know this because after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's that interesting verse in Matthew 27 that said all of a sudden after the resurrection, all of these others resurrected with him and they were walking throughout Jerusalem. How'd you like to see that? And then of course he ascended into heaven. And at the rapture of the church, we will be joined together with those who have preceded us in Christ and be given our glorified bodies. That is is what this resurrection is all about. It is being rejoined with our physical bodies. Now, those who are dead apart from Christ have been residing in S.H.I.E.L.D. in Hades, okay? And they will remain there until the great white throne judgment. At that point, they are joined again with their physical bodies to be cast into all eternity apart from God. But you and I, who are in Christ, at the rapture of the church, will enjoy our heavenly bodies, and we will enjoy eternity in that state. These bodies were created for this state, a physical, limited state, needing oxygen, sleep, etc. But our eternal bodies will be again created to enjoy eternity. But those apart from God, too, will be given an eternal state, and it'll be one of torment and of suffering. So Hades and Abraham's bosom, those things have been done away with. Now the last of it is hell. It is the eternal existence, which is represented by the lake of fire here. That's probably the easiest way I can explain it. And all were cast in. Notice with me. Everyone judged according to the work. And then, verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. I mean, they're done away with. This is the second uh, uh, death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The word cast there is very interesting. It means that it's immediate. It means that it happens right away. There is no delay. After the great white throne, it's an immediately sentenced and that sentence is executed. There's no delay in between the sentencing and the execution of that sentencing. And these individuals will spend an eternity apart from Christ. 
When Jesus walked on this earth, he talked about a place called Gehenna. And when he did, he was pointing to a garbage dump that was outside the city walls of Jerusalem, where all the refuge of the city was burned, but also the bodies of those who had been executed by the Romans. And the stench would be just horrific, according to Josephus, the historian. And when they threw bodies upon this fire, black smoke would engulf the city, and people knew that death reigned there. This is the example that he gave concerning this lake of fire, this torment forever and ever. As one wrote, he said, Professor John Wolvert, he said, the statement of death and Hades gave up their dead means that the physical bodies of the unsaved will be joined with their spirits, which have been in Hades. The mention of the sea giving of the dead makes it clear that regardless of how far the body has disintegrated throughout the centuries without the nations, it nevertheless will be resurrected for this judgment. Hey, I don't know about you, but I don't want to see my worst enemy at that moment, do you? I think we need to regain the same compassion that Christ has. And we need to be praying for those who do not know him, even if our stomachs are turned by the corruption and what they are doing. We need to be praying for those who don't think like us, who see things differently. We need to be asking the Lord to open their eyes and open their hearts. Because let's be honest, the only reason that we're standing here and able to rejoice knowing that we are not going to stand before the great white throne of God is because someone shared with us the love of Jesus, right? So who are we then to deny anyone else? Who are we to sentence and judge anyone else? As one put it this way, we are just one beggar telling another beggar where to find some food. I want to close with the words of Warren Wiersbe, if I may. In light of Calvary, no lost sinner can, con can condemn God for casting him into hell. God has provided a way of escape, patiently waiting for sinners to repent. He will not lower his standard or alter his requirements. He has ordained that faith in His Son is the only way of salvation. The white throne judgment will be nothing like our modern court cases. At the white throne there will be a judge but no jury, a prosecutor but no defense, a sentence but no appeal. No one will be able to defend himself or herself or accuse God of unrighteousness. What an awesome scene that will be, he, say, he states. Before God can usher in the new heavens and the new earth, He must finally deal with sin. And this He will do at the great white throne, judgment. In closing, Jesus said this in John 5, 24, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my words and believes in Him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Each and every day, Satan accuses us before God the Father. He displays our guilt and our shame and our sin and asks God, how is it possible that they stand in your presence when you cast me down with no hope of redemption? Why is it, God, 
that they can stand before you in the imperfect, sinful state in which they are. And as we stand there with our head hung low, because we know that what Satan says is true, John writes to us and lets us know a truth that should encourage our heart. That we as Christians at that moment, as Satan accuses us each and every day, and rightfully so, we do not stand alone at that moment. It's at that moment that we are we're just standing there in our shame and in our guilt that this gentle, nail-pierced hand touches our shoulder, steps in front of us, and says, God the Father, they are one of mine. And God the Father looks through Christ and sees, no longer sees our sin, no longer sees our shame, no longer sees our guilt, because Christ has done away with all of that in and through His blood. The crucifixion gave us forgiveness. The resurrection gave us adoption. We are now one of His. Joint heirs with Christ for all eternity. We do not stand alone. We do not stand alone before God and we do not stand alone here on this earth because God will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen.